Thanks for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Tara Baker, Director of Marketing Communications for Special Olympics, a role she describes as having provided her with personal and professional growth. We're impacting the lives of, of millions of people with intellectual disabilities and, and creating inclusive climates through the sports world, on and off the field. While local, national, and even global games are their marquee events, the reach of the organization is very much grassroots focused. What started as a small one-time event is now what we do every single day, 365 days a year, every single hour. We have over 100,000 events happening around the globe in over 290 countries. We have over 6 million athletes who compete. Prior to joining Special Olympics, Tara worked at ESPN as an Emmy award-winning producer on the creative content team. I did not leave because I didn't like working for ESPN. I saw that there were so many stories to be told, and that's a big reason why I work and I, I every day wake up excited to do what I do because we have millions of these types of stories. Tara credits her production work as being very beneficial in her new role. The way I always look at it is like ESPN gave me my background and basis for number one, what is a good story? Number two, how do you utilize that story and and make it something that is going to impact other people? I asked Tara during this episode to share some of the favorite pieces of hers that she worked on while at ESPN. So make sure to check out the show notes on credentialsonly.com for links to those videos and to much more information about what we discuss. And please take a moment, leave a rating and a review wherever you access podcasts. Without further ado, please join this conversation with Director of Marketing Communications for the Special Olympics, Tara Baker, on Credentials Only. Tara, thank you so much for joining me. I have to start with really just a very basic question. Please define the Special Olympics. Sure. So Special Olympics is, uh, you know, a sports organization that really at the core, what we do is sports and it's offering sports programming for people with intellectual disabilities, but also people without intellectual disabilities. And, you know, the mission is really to provide year round sports opportunity for people with and without intellectual disabilities. And we use sports as a catalyst to create change for inclusion for people with intellectual disabilities in all facets of life. Um, and what started as a sports organization back in uh, 1960 has really grown to become this organization that also taps into the work that we do in schools. We're in nearly 10,000 schools um, across the United States and in other countries of the world where we're offering Special Olympic sports programming through the schools. We also um, do a lot of work in the inclusive health space to educate people on how to provide inclusive health opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And we also do a lot of work um, in athlete leadership and, and training our, our athletes who have intellectual disabilities, how to be leaders both on and off the field. So it's an incredible organization that's been around for over 50 years. And, um, you know, it's, it's, 
allowed me to grow in ways, both professionally and personally, that uh, I didn't even know was possible. There's a lot that you've put into that definition. And that's great because it does cover the spectrum of what the organization does. I want to dive into a little bit. And, and I want to start, I think, the Paralympics are probably what a lot of people think of as well, mm-hmm. which is different. Yep. Can you explain that difference? Yeah, absolutely. So Special Olympics, um, we are not associated with Olympics. Uh, we you know, have the right to use the term Olympics through an agreement with the IOC, but we are not technically involved with the Olympics. Um, and so Olympics and Paralympics all operate under the IOC and Paralympics is really for people that have a physical disability. So if there's people who, you know, um, have uh, an injury that results in, you know, the removal of a limb or something like that. Like that's what Paralympics is really geared towards. There are people who do compete in Paralympics that have intellectual disabilities. So we do have some athletes who are Special Olympics athletes that also compete in Paralympic events. Um, we have a, a phenomenal swimmer who is from California who has competed both at Special Olympics events and Paralympic events. But Special Olympics is really specific to people with intellectual disabilities. And that's when someone has had some kind of um, impairment to their um, mental capacities, whether that's through, you know, problems pre-birth, during birth, or post-birth up until the age of 18 that has impacted their mental capacity. You mentioned the 1960 start of the organization. What is kind of the history that has built it up to what it is today? Yeah, so I I got that date wrong. It was actually 1958, um, but really, the Special Olympics originated um, in the early 1950s. Um, our founder Eunice Kennedy Shriver was part of the Shriver Kennedy family, and um, in 1952, she hosted people in the backyard of her home um, to compete in different uh, sport events. They had people running out on the lawn. They had people um, competing in the swimming pool. And that Camp Shriver really ended up developing into the first Special Olympics Games, which were held in 1958 in uh, Chicago, Illinois, in Soldier Field, which near and dear to my heart since I grew (laughs) up uh, in a northwest suburb of Chicago. Really proud to say that that was the birthplace of Special Olympics. Um, The first event was held for people across the United States. Um, We had competitors from Canada and also outside of the United States that competed in Soldier Field in different events such as track and field, swimming, bocce, and things of that nature. So really, um, it it came at a really interesting time for our country. um, and, And it was a time where our country was really divided. And that event ended up being, you know, a catalyst for a a movement that really swelled since then. Um, You know, what started as a small one-time event is now what we do every single day, 365 days a year, every single hour, we have over 100,000 events happening around the globe in over 290 countries. We have over 6 million athletes who compete. And, um, you know, it's it's just an incredible movement that has really started that really had its roots at the grassroots level and continues to have that. Um, it is a nonprofit organization that we really do 
survive and thrive off of the volunteer work that we have. You know, all of our coaches are volunteers, a majority of our even national directors outside of of the United States volunteer their time to, you know, um, lead what we're doing in in different countries. And um, it's been, you know, the last three plus years have been an incredible, you know, opportunity for our organization to grow and, and me being involved with it, I've, I've grown in, in ways I can't even say both professionally and personally. You mentioned it as a movement and you, you said earlier, you know, the catalyst for inclusion, there is definitely more than just put on an event here. There is a, a greater mission and it sounds like it impacts you on a personal level, which is very rewarding, I'm sure. But what is that, like in the day-to-day at the organization to be that catalyst for inclusion and part of that movement? Yeah. I mean, you know, my, my career, I started it right out of college working at ESPN, which, you know, your first job out of college working for ESPN pinched me like I must be dreaming. Right. Um, And I had an incredible career at ESPN. I was fortunate enough to work on Grand Slam tennis events with you, Pete, Um, you know, work on World Cups, um, worked on college football, the first national, um, you know, the first college football playoff and, you know, incredible opportunities. But you know, the reason I made a career shift to work for Special Olympics was I wanted to take what I had learned at ESPN and and apply it for a greater good. And I saw that working for a nonprofit like Special Olympics, I could have a direct impact on people's lives that really need it. And that's really what our organization does on on a daily basis in through sports, through education, through health. Um, You know, we're impacting the lives of of millions of people with intellectual disabilities and, and creating inclusive climates through the sports world, on and off the field, through our work in schools, you know, it, it, we're finding that by doing things like unified sports, which is um, when we pair people who have intellectual disabilities and people without intellectual disabilities on the same playing field, competing in sports like soccer and basketball, volleyball, um, that you know, those inclusive opportunities on the field are translating to positive inclusive experiences off the field. So, you know, teammates are are having lunch together at school. They're hanging out outside of school. And it's just opening the hearts and minds of, of people that don't have intellectual di- disabilities to the abilities of people that may have um, intellectual disabilities. And so, you know, that's really rewarding work. Um, you know, it's been a challenge throughout uh, COVID-19 and this global pandemic, of course, like any, you know, for anyone else, you know, people with intellectual disabilities are, are part of a population that have experienced isolation for their entire lives. And, um, you know, it's been a challenge to not further that divide and and that um, exclusive and isolated feelings for the people that we serve. However, we're using new and innovative ways but um, to connect people digitally. So um, we may have had to cancel many of our in-person events, both uh, sport events and um, what we do for fundraising purposes, but we're doing a lot of things in the digital space. Um, our, our programs quickly shifted to hosting what they typically do in person, 
um, by doing things electronically and digitally. So typically all of our programs host uh, summer games where we have, you know, in-person competition. This year, what people did was challenged our athletes to get out there, continue to do you know, different individual skills, keep running, keep active, keep fit. And we're still celebrating our athletes on a day-to-day basis. I definitely want to talk more about that ESPN chapter of your story mm-hmm. uh, as we go on. How did you get introduced though to Special Olympics and to this movement? Yeah. So my um, stepbrother is an athlete in Illinois. Um, and so I had been involved in the movement since uh, my high school days and in, in going to his competition. So I was a fan first and a spectator first. Um, in college, I was able to volunteer uh, with my soccer team um, to be part of some of the events that were happening in Michigan. So from a spectator, I then became a volunteer. But it was really in um, 2015 while working for ESPN that um, I had the opportunity to be part of the ESPN broadcast team for the first televised nationally um, world games, which were hosted in Los Angeles. And it was the first time that we had um, uh, that Special Olympics had been covered um, at on that scale. And ESPN has been a, our global broadcast partner since then. But that was really my aha moment of, wow, I could take what I've done with this organization and, you know, through my time at ESPN, I had volunteered for a lot of the local events here in Connecticut too, through um, the Disney volunteers uh, uh, program. But I had that aha moment of like, wow, I can take what I've done and learned at ESPN and, and, you know, have a greater impact for the greater good. And it took me a couple of years to actually make that jump and make that uh, career change because it, it was a total career change. You know, what I used to do at ESPN, you know, fully, television video production is just a small part of what I do now for Special Olympics. Um, and I've been able to expand my skill set to include things like public relations and social media and crisis communications and website design and partner management. And it's just been, you know, again, professionally and personally, a way that I was able to grow incredibly in a very short amount of time. The organization does a lot of different things. How is it structured to, from putting on these games to getting people in these communities in Chicago and Michigan and Connecticut involved in playing? Yeah, so the way our organization is structured, our headquarters are based in Washington, D.C. And so we have, you know, our governing body, let's say, um, that's headquartered in Washington, D.C., We have seven regions around the world, and the region that I'm directly involved with is Special Olympics North America. That's comprised of the U.S., Canada, and Caribbean. So we have 52 U.S. programs. Um, We divide California into two because it's so large and we serve so many athletes um, in that state. We have 13 uh, provinces in Canada that we have Special Olympics um, programs there, and then 22 islands in the Caribbean. And each one of those entities are a separate 501c3. And um, they really do govern what they do um, at that local level. And um, they, you know, put on all sorts of different events every single day, it seems. Um, You know, a lot of their events 
happen at the grassroots level, so at the area, um, in local communities, et cetera. Um, and those events often feed up into some of the larger events that are held on a statewide scale. So things like our state spring, summer, winter, fall games, et cetera. And then um, every four years, we have a Special Olympics USA Games, which are hosted um, the Previous ones were hosted in 2018 in Seattle, Washington. Our next ones are going to be held in uh, Orlando in uh, 2022. And um, outside of those, we also have World Games, which are hosted every two years on the odd years, uh, very similar to the Olympics. Uh, we have winter and summer games. Our Winter games were supposed to be held in 2021, but due to the pandemic, they are going to be held instead in January of 2022. And then our next summer games are going to be hosted in 2023. So those are events that happen every two years on a worldwide scale. And hopefully that gives you a good overview of how we're structured and how some of our events uh, work. There's a lot going on in this organization. Your title is Director of Marketing and Communications. So you're probably touching a lot of different facets of what you're doing as Special Olympics. How would you describe your role? Oh, gosh. It's a, a role of many hats. <laughs> um, and, and more so now than ever, because uh, since the pandemic, you know, I feel like marketing and communications uh, staff have been tapped into more than ever, especially since so much of what we do, um, you know, is, is having to shift into a digital space. And, you know, our marketing and communications people had already been wearing so many hats and are, are really that linchpin around how do, what are we doing? How are we communicating it out to people and sharing the message and getting partners and sponsors involved and delivering our miss mission on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, me personally, the way that my role works is um, working for Special Olympics North America. I, I'm that kind of conduit between our headquarters. So anything that we're, we're doing on a global scale runs through me and then I disseminate the information out to our programs um, from the US, Canada and the Caribbean and vice versa. So anything that we're doing at the program level, then I funnel back up to our headquarters office as well. Um, a lot of my day-to-day -day really involves um, communicating out different campaigns, different messaging, um, global initiatives that we're doing and getting the support of our programs, um, you know, around our region. And then um, also a lot of partner activations, things that we're doing with global partners um, or some of the partners that are specifically for our different events that are happening either on a regional level or a global level. So, you know, connecting our athletes for media opportunities. I'll give you a great example. We just had a Special Olympics athlete from Florida compete in the Ironman, Chris Nickich, and it has created this amazing swell of awareness because he's been a longtime uh, Special Olympics athlete and really used Special Olympics and um, training for his, you know, in, to compete in triathlons as a way to then set a goal to complete an Ironman and be the first person with Down syndrome to complete an Ironman. And so we've been working tirelessly <laughs> over the last, gosh, 70, 72 hours or so, and, and even leading up to the event to ensure that, you know, 
that that story is shared. And, you know, he being the first person with Down syndrome to be able to complete that incredibly difficult, um, you know, uh, event is just going to, you know, shatter stereotypes and, and show people the abilities that people with intellectual disabilities have. And I think open the door for so many more of our athletes to set goals like that and to aspire to be someone like Chris Nickich. I wanted to bring up Chris, so I'm very <laughs> glad that you did. It, it's been incredible to see the reaction to that. How much had you guys done to be ready to capitalize on the moment? And then are you shocked to see how well it's being received and how far that story's going? Yeah, you know, we there's been a lot of different entities involved in the sharing of that story. Um, we had done a decent amount of work leading up to the event. Um, ESPN's actually been embedded with Chris for a couple of weeks now, captured a lot of his training um, content, and they're uh, likely going to be doing some kind of bigger feature story um, that will be released uh, in 2021, so after the college football season ends. So we've been doing a little bit of the groundwork there. We've been doing a lot of groundwork for just our own coverage in, in how we want to share his story. And to be honest, I'm not too surprised by how incredible that story has been um, embraced, honestly. I think it could have made an even bigger impact and been embraced even more had some other really important news not come out on the same day that he completed the Ironman. Um, because, you know, a big reason why I, I uh, decided to shift careers and leave ESPN, a job that I loved. I did not leave because I didn't like working for ESPN. Um, I, I just, I saw that there were so many stories to be told. And that's a big reason why I work. And I, I every day wake up excited to do what I do because we have millions of these types of stories that we need people to help us tell these stories. And, and someone like Chris Nickich is that way that we can say, look, this is just one, one example. And, you know, an incredible, like, holy cow, I could never even think about com completing an Ironman, let alone training for one, let alone even like trying, um, that this is the kind of opportunity that we like to tap into um, and really use as another catalyst to be like, you think this is impressive. We've got millions of these kind of athletes that we want you to know more about these people. And honestly, in this, in this day and age, we need more of these types of inspiring stories. And I think that's a big reason why it's been embraced and shared and has gone viral in so many ways, because it's that really amazing, heartwarming, inspiring story that we need more of that content now more than ever. And for you, you have to really manage the content in some different ways between your various roles. And I kind of want to talk about the nuts and bolts of that, if you don't mind. And starting with that chapter communication, because each chapter has, you're all after the same mission, but they each have their own things and their own factors that are going to make different things important to them at different times. How do you keep up with, I mean, you said 52 in the U.S. alone, plus Canada and the Caribbean. How do you keep up with all that? Honestly, it's near impossible. Um, I read a lot, uh, a lot of emails, a lot of Zoom calls. Um, and, you know, a big way that I, I keep 
tabs on what's happening around our our organization and especially in the North America region is I follow every single one of our chapters on social media. That's a big way that we disseminate our message to not only internally to you know our athletes and 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 that audience, but also our external audiences as well. Um, I subscribe to every single newsletter that all of our our chapters disseminate to. Some of them do it on a monthly basis. Some do it on a bi-weekly basis. Some do it honestly on almost on a daily basis. That's a big way too. And there's a lot of really um, great support people that I have that are in communications positions at that local level that I'm in touch with nonstop um, via email, calls, Zoom calls, um, you know, you name it, that's how we're communicating. And it's a, it's a, challenge, honestly, especially, you know, um, I had been, I had been working remotely for three years. I had not met every single person that I interface with, um, you know, face to face. So it's a lot of trust that they're putting in me. And and I also put in them to keep that, those lines of, of communication open and keep us up to date on what they're doing so that we can amplify what they're doing and also help support what they're doing as well. You mentioned the social media component for the, mm-hmm. the individual chapters, but you're also touching that uh, for the organiza- organization more broadly. And, and one of the things I noticed is that you guys are pretty aggressive in keeping that inclusion story front and center. Mm-hmm. What are some of the hashtags you use and, and what is the thinking behind that? Yeah, so one of the major hashtags that we use is choose to include. Um, And that's one that we've been using for years now. Um, And that really is, you know, we are a sports organization. We will always be a sports organization, but we've shifted from being solely about you know, sport on the field to so much more about inclusion off the field as well, that that's one of the, you know, the main messaging points that have shifted a little, a little bit. And I think a lot of people that are not involved in our movement um, directly still think of us as that these special Olympics and when are your, when is that event happening again? And it's, it's just, it's grown so much more from that, one-time event that happens once every year to something that we're doing every single day. And that's part of why we've shifted our messaging to be about inclusion. And we need inclusion now more than ever, also in this country and in this whole world. Um, Another hashtag that we use frequently is um, inclusion revolution. That's a uh, part of our five-year marketing plan that really is um, focused on bringing more people into the movement, getting more people involved and and part of our uh, efforts to raise our fundraising as well. Um, So those are the two main hashtags that we typically use. Uh, Another one that is more specific to our youth audiences and what we're doing in schools is uh, Unified Generation. And that's another group of people that we're trying to tap into, the millennials, the centennials that uh, will help you know, really start the support of our movement at the younger levels and make sure that those people, you know, get a, get, get their in with Special Olympics from an early age and will continue to support Special Olympics throughout their entire lives. So those are the three main hashtags that we typically use. You mentioned in that answer, the bigger events and the USA Games and things like that. You're managing that communications effort, which is a completely different thing. And then on top of that, you did that 50th anniversary event as well. Mm -hmm. 
how do you prepare for those big events on the communication side? Yeah. So for those events, I am lucky enough to have other people that I can tap into. So it is most certainly not only me. Um, and so for our world games, um, I, I help oversee our communications efforts for Special Olympics USA, which is the delegation that re represents the United States at world games. And so for those opportunities, we enlist the help of volunteers from our state programs to be part of a volunteer communications team. So I am lucky enough to have, I think it's four people who have outside of their typical day-to-day -day job that they have for their state program, they will volunteer their time to support our Special Olympics USA delegation leading up to our World Winter Games in Kazan in 2022, and then also our World um, Summer Games that are happening in Berlin in 2023. Um, for our USA Games, uh, how that works is it's a separate 501c3 that um, is established for about four years leading up to the Games, and then it, it dissolves like a month after the uh, event happens. And we, what we do is we hire a local organizing committee. And there, so there's dedicated staff specifically to the marketing and communications efforts in lead up to and during uh, USA Games. So I, I work with that group. Uh, most of them are based locally in Orlando or around the Orlando area. And so uh, I kind of help them, guide them, give them a lot of historical knowledge and, and work as that conduit between them and our state programs to support um, any of the marketing and communications efforts for USA Games. Then beyond that, there is the advocacy piece mm -hmm. and there's fundraising, there's recruitment of volunteers, which is its own special form of communications as well, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So luckily, I don't personally have to wear the fundraising hat. Um, in our region, how a lot of that works is our headquarters often secures partners for our, our whole United States. And so I, I get more involved, not so much in the like um, securement of new partners and sponsors. I'm more so on the deliverable side. So once we secure a partner, let's say Bank of America has been a longtime supporter of Special Olympics when um, they want to do different campaigns involving our athletes. That's when I get involved in, in you know, pitching different athlete stories, or this is a great person that you should definitely be highlighting. Here's why, et cetera. That's where I come in. Um, but our, our communications contacts at the state level are very involved in, in fundraising um, and do a lot of the work to, you know, line up different events, whether they're in person or virtual. Um, we have an effort that's called Law Enforcement Torch Run, which is the largest grassroots fundraising arm of what Special Olympics does. And it works hand in hand with um, Special Olympics and law enforcement. So we have incredible support around the globe. There have been millions of dollars raised through Law Enforcement Torch Run. And some of the events that are held for fundraising purposes through that is um, Polar Plunges. So that is where, you know, people either individually set up teams, uh, raise funds to then jump into icy cold waters, which is super fun. Um, that is a trademark of Special Olympics and something that raises 
thousands and thousands of dollars every single year for what we do. We do things like um, over the edge where somebody repels down the side of a building. That's part of our law enforcement torture. And there's cops on rooftops where we work hand in hand with um, different businesses to literally put law enforcement on the roof and you have to raise a bunch of funds so that we can get them down off the roof, things like that. Um, and th those are some of the really great fundraising um, opportunities that we do to raise the funds that are needed to continue the programming that we do both with sports, education, health, et cetera. It's something like Chris Nickich, because it just happened. I want to use that as an example. This, that does have a lot of momentum behind it. How do you, as a communications pro, take that and kind of customize the story to each of these different audiences, whether it's the volunteer recruitment or the fundraising or to the chapters and to a success story to all their athletes? How do you go about taking that one piece of content and crafting it differently for different audiences? Yeah, so that that story is such an incredible one because really the base and the origin of that story without Special Olympics, Chris, you know, he may have been able to, but I, I don't think as quickly as he was able to be able to compete and train and complete an Ironman. And so the way that we can, we can kind of craft and mold that messaging um, and, and use it for different, different ways that we communicate and for the different things that we communicate, you know, one is, you know, utilizing the people that helped support Chris to get to that point. So one of the main, main persons or people that were involved was, a, was a coach and that's a volunteer coach. And she does not get paid by special Olympics and she has invested hours, hours across many, many years to help train Chris to become the elite athlete that he is. And using that example of this person is not paid. How can we continue to provide this kind of programming, this kind of, of support for our athletes? You want to get involved and keep this operation running and we need your support. And, you know, your dollars go a long way to provide this kind of programming for our athletes. And, you know, things like um, every year around this time, we we start a big end of year push and some of the outreach that we do through our various communications is okay. We need this much PPE now um, to, to do some of the in-person um, events that we do. We need balls, we need, you know, training equipment, et cetera. And if you donate $25, you provide X amount of fitness equipment for these um, for our athletes. Um, one of the things that we're starting to do now too is create these fitness kits, at-home fitness kits that include, you know, little hand weights and jump ropes and different types of things that athletes need to use at their homes now to stay active, stay fit, stay involved. And um, we're finding a lot of using that kind of messaging to bring in funding for our organization is, is going really well. You mentioned that ESPN had a crew embedded with Chris, and I think that's a perfect way to pivot to your work at ESPN because there would have been a time not that long ago where you probably would have been part of that crew. What was your role at ESPN? 
Yeah. So I was lucky enough to uh, work for ESPN for 12 years. Um, I I got my start by working for an outside company that um, produced content for ESPN Classic. Uh, After a year of that, um, I was actually grandfathered into event production. And at event production, what I typically worked on was the live sports and events that happened. However, I was more in a post-producer role. So um, I was fortunate enough enough to be able to create really creative and compelling content by interviewing incredible sports athletes, the likes of Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Maria Sharapova, um, just talking about tennis um, and, you know, feature content um, teases, which are the, you know, types of of edited content that bring the broadcast on the air, get people really excited to, to watch the event. Um, a lot of the rollouts that ESPN would do, which is basically recapping what happened during a game or an event that airs at the end of the broadcast. Um, and it was (laughs) an incredible 12 years working for ESPN. I was lucky enough to lead, you know, eventually towards the end of my career at ESPN, I had grown from someone who, who created all the content to somebody who was managing teams of people creating content for the likes of, you know, Euro soccer tournaments, uh, you know, doing any of the lead up content, planning all that content, helping direct people towards what storylines needed to be covered, how did it need to be covered, and and ended, you know, my career by managing, you know, upwards of 30, 50 people through the, the process anywhere from the people who were filming the content to the producers who were editing the content, the editors that were working with producers to edit the content. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough to work on some of the biggest and best premier sports that ESPN had the privilege of covering uh, during the 12 years that I worked for the organization. Event production, you said, goes out and does the games and, and you were part of that. Then there's the studio production, which is putting the sports centers on the air. Mm-hmm. That creative content, though, is kind of an island onto itself within ESPN. How do you guys interface with those other pieces of the puzzle that end up putting that product on the air? Yeah. So, um, (laughs) I like to use the analogy. I don't know who told me this first, but really what I did at ESPN was, was make the sprinkles that go on the cupcake, like the games and events themselves are the cupcakes, but we get to do like the frosting and the sprinkles and make it pretty and make it delicious, you know? Um, but how, you know, how a lot of that interfaced with the people that were producing the actual live games and the live studio um, productions is we would often have, you know, production meetings to talk through what the, you know, main storylines were, what the coverage plan was, and then create what the content plan would be to help cover and provide additional content to get in and out of breaks or add editorial context to and storyline context to the the coverage. And so we would have a lot of meetings to do that plan, um, create that plan, go and edit the content. And oftentimes whatever we had on paper (laughs) didn't end up becoming what we actually needed. And oftentimes would have to shift uh, some of our creative content uh, plan and 
you know, a perfect example, Pete, I'm sure you remember this one, uh, 2009 U.S. Open when Serena Williams and Caroline Wozniacki were in the semifinal. We had no idea how that match was going to end up. And boy, did we have to shift our plan to how we were going to cover that after. So that's a great example of, you know, how we ended up spending probably an overnight creating a mini movie, um, that then recapped kind of what happened in that match, why it was controversial at the end. And, and that then led what our coverage was the next day, because it was the top storyline out of the day. Can you walk through for, for an uninitiated person such as myself, I see 45 seconds of beautiful television. There's a whole lot of heavy lifting that goes into that. Just the time required to, to make a 45 second piece. But then also what are all the little considerations that we probably take for granted as a viewer? Yeah. And you know, that's the thing is I always tell people, if you see 45 seconds of content, it's literally probably upwards of 45 hours that go into creating 45 seconds of content. And every edit is approached completely differently based on what the, you know, what do you want the end piece to be? What is the purpose that it's serving? Where is it running in the show? Um, you know, you have to make decisions everywhere from the music, what music, the tone that you want to set for your piece, the voiceover, is there voiceover? Is there not? Who's the right person for this? How, like, what does the script need to read? Like if somebody's providing voiceover content, you have to dig through hours and hours of footage to find the best shots to tell that complete story. You have to listen through hours and hours of content if you're adding sock calls, you know, sound on tape from, you know, different events um, and different coverage of what, you know, you're trying to then put into a, a finished piece. And typically, um, at least at ESPN, the way it worked with us was you had a producer who was kind of mining through and, and finding all of that content and kind of putting all those different sprinkles together on top of the frosting, on top of the cupcake, um, and working with a creative and unbelievably talented editor to take all those pieces and put them into something that then becomes what you eventually see on television. And that doesn't even start to talk about the videographers who were part of capturing that content. So that includes people that are capturing, you know, creative stylized content, but also the camera people and everyone who was involved with the actual live, you know, event coverage too. And you're taking all of those pieces, pulling them together into a creative kind of, you know, idea, and then working with your producer to then make it into the final product that you see. It is a large team. How do you go about coalescing them around that core idea that the fundamental cornerstone of the piece that you you have in your mind as the producer? Yeah. You know, sometimes, <laughs> oftentimes we're all on the same page and, you know, we're lucky enough to have incredibly talented, creative people that have been doing this for an even much, much longer time than I have. And, you know, they have been honing their craft for years. And um, oftentimes, you know, we're working with the show producers that are the ones who eventually ultimately have editorial control over the entire show. And so they often provide really helpful feedback on, you know, 
early on in the process of what they want a piece like that to be. And then at the end of the product where they give very critical feedback on, okay, we need to change X, Y, and Z. Oftentimes, you know, many people are all on the same page, but it depends on how many people are weighing in on it. Um, different people. And, and then that's part of the fun, but also part of the challenge of, of being involved in creative content production is everybody's got a different opinion about creative content and what one person may like another person may not. I mean, just think about different musical selections and people's differing opinions on what music is right, what sound is right, what tone is right, what words are right. Um, but that's part of the fun too. And in that creative collaborative process. And I miss, I miss doing that a lot. I definitely do. (laughs) As an ESPN veteran, you know, would if you were talking to someone who's in college or just out of college looking to get into sports broadcasting, which has exploded with so many different mm-hmm. outlets, both traditional linear, but also digitally now, what would be advice you'd give to someone mm-hmm. who's looking to pursue that type of a role now? Yeah. Um, that's really a great question. It's so different now than what it was when I was trying to break into the business because it's just, we're delivering content in ways we didn't even know were possible when I first started. I think the biggest feedback I'd give to people is get as much hands-on experience as you can as early as you can. And that's through internships. It's through taking courses. Um, What I'm seeing is, you know, there's so many more expectations of people doing so many more things, whether it's doing, you know, I can speak from both Special Olympics and ESPN experience that, you know, what was a producer then is not what a producer is now. It's really, you've got to be able to shoot your own footage. You've got to be able to edit your own content together. You've got to produce all of that um, in one big piece. You've got to figure out how that, you know, content should then be posted on social media, what are the right channels, et cetera. So I think getting involved in, you know, that hands-on experience as early as possible through internships, honestly, through volunteering, the more you can do a lot of that and get a wide range of experience on a lot of different platforms, producing a lot of different content, the more successful you'll be um, in the long run and, and really just staying up to speed and up to date on the ever evolving, you know, (laughs) um, environment that we're in for media and content and social media, et cetera, is, is really what I, I give people as advice. As you look back at your time at ESPN, are there a couple pieces you're particularly proud of that really stand out? Yeah. Oh gosh, that's that's always a tough question. Um, yeah, there's there's a few. I think my all-time favorite that I'm probably the most proud of was one actually that um, I produced with Tim Mullen, one of our incredible editors on tennis. Um, during the 2011 Australian Open, um, we had uh, a challenge from our uh, vice president, Jamie Reynolds, to take behind the scenes footage and figure out how to use that content. Um, and we didn't have, you know, a template for it. And what then resulted was just this creative freedom um, because we broke out of the mold of what we had been doing prior to that event. Um, And this was, you know, 
This is really at the very beginning of getting that behind the scenes access. Um, and Australian Open was so incredible in giving us more access to seeing, you know, the, these top level athletes behind the scenes in those quiet moments that you don't typically see. And, and that was one of the most exhilarating times of, of my career um, in creating great content and, you know, working with the likes of, you know, videographers like Maddie Hill and, and Twiz um, and Sweeney and Jay Fredericks back in the day. Like it, you know, it was a lot of incredible people creating and capturing a lot of creative content and then putting it all together with such an incredible person like Tim Mullen was, was amazing. Um, I also had the opportunity to produce the final tease for the 2010 FIFA world cup, which as at the time I was an associate producer, that was, I mean, a breakthrough moment for me to have the opportunity to work on a script with, uh, Jeff Sarakin, who's an incredible writer that's done, uh, I mean, countless, um, you know, edits and, and provided the most incredible script writing for uh, a ton of our ESPN properties. Um, Don Cheadle voiced that. And I edited that one with uh, Twee Din, who's another incredible editor that's worked on a lot of our, our programming. And then the last one I'd mention is um, it was towards the end of my career at ESPN. And I worked on the college football playoff and produced a tease for um, an Alabama Clemson semifinal game. Um, and that was probably my third of the top three, <laughs> but I, I mean, there's always, though it's, it's, it's interesting. There's always like, you, you go back and you like nitpick <laughs> on your own edits. Right. And there's still a million things I would change about all those edits, but those are probably, uh, I'll, I'll mention one more cause I see a picture of it in my office too. I had the most incredible opportunity to produce um, a feature on a person in South Africa who is called the Lion Whisperer. And this man had this uncanny ability to be able to like be in with lions and like touch them. And he had raised them from when they were little cubs. And it was like, I, when I first saw him and saw him go into the pen with like a full live lion, I was like, where am I? What is happening right now? And oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it. So that was a really fun one too. Are there any pieces that you did not get to do that you really wanted to? The wrong team or person won and the story just didn't pan out? Oh, that's a good question, Pete. I don't know that I've ever thought about that one. I mean, I... I'm sure that there have been countless tennis events where we're like, okay, we, we want a Roger Rafa final. And unfortunately the, you know, the brackets didn't work out and we didn't end up with that outcome. Um, there were definitely some during my soccer days where, you know, I had vested interest in the teams that I loved, um, you know, Spain being one of them or during the Euro soccer tournament, man, I wanted Iceland to go all the way because they had just the best storylines, the best footage, and they didn't end up making it to the final, but man, did we ride that Iceland wave as long as possible. Um, so there's a couple of examples, but yeah, you know, that that's the, the fun thing about working behind the scenes and working on creative content is like, 
no matter what the the teams are or you know the the players that are playing against each other like there's really fun ways to be creative regardless of who who ends up in the final how did the creative content work and the storytelling work at ESPN inform what you now do with Special Olympics in a broader communications role? Yeah, that's a really good question too, Pete. You know, I the way I always look at it is like ESPN gave me my background and basis for number one, what is a good story? Number two, how do you utilize that story and and make it something that is going to impact other people. And, you know, that's my incredible opportunity with working for Special Olympics is, like I said, and I I use this analogy a lot, um, there's only so many stories you can tell about LeBron James. And like, you know, how can you continue to come up with new ways, creative ways to like cover LeBron James or cover... Clemson football, if they're always in the final and Alabama, and you know, there's always new players coming onto those teams, but with special Olympics, like we have all of these untapped, incredibly inspiring stories that now I have the privilege of, of finding those stories and then sharing those stories. Um, and I'm also lucky enough that with ESPN being a global broadcast partner for special Olympics, I still get to work with the people I used to work for. So um, Bill Bennell, who's the coordinating producer for events that um, that are covered by ESPN um, about Special Olympics, Kate Jackson, who's a coordinating producer, I get to work with them to pitch them stories. Um, and, you know, having that background and kind of understanding the way that ESPN works, what some of those ideas are that they would be most compelled to cover, the storylines that they need, how they need it packaged, what kind of content they need has made that part of my job so much easier. But I really think that at the core of what every communications professional does, there's two things. It's one, content is king. What content do we have to share and how can we share it? And then two is that if you have compelling, incredible, inspiring content, like you will have a really hard time if you don't have a good plan for how to communicate that out. And, and a lot of that I had instilled in me while working for ESPN and now it's translated to what I do for Special Olympics. We've talked about Chris completing the Ironman, which is an incredible story. What would be a couple other Special Olympics stories that people might not have heard about that they should know about? Yeah, Um, so we've got an incredible power lifter. His name is Garrett Ford. Um, He is from Ohio. He's competed in uh, our Special Olympics USA Games in Seattle. He won four gold, so in three individual events and then the combination of the four of the three. He did the same thing at our World Games in um, in Abu Dhabi back in 2019. Again, you know, won gold in deadlift, in uh, squat, and um, I'm forgetting what the third one is because. 
deadlift squat. I can't remember what the third one is, but then, you know, the combination of all four uh, gold. And since then he's gone to compete in um, the Arnold classic, which in an open division. So he's taken what he's kind of learned and competing in special Olympics events and is starting to now compete in events that are not related to special Olympics in an open category, competing against people who do not have intellectual disabilities. And it's starting to challenge him to train in different ways. And, you know, that shows that inclusion is possible both within Special Olympics, but outside of Special Olympics. And we need more of those opportunities to reach even greater audiences to showcase the abilities of our athletes. Um, we've got a lot of really elite runners. Um, Andrew Peterson is a Special Olympics athlete from Indiana who has competed in um, the Boston Marathon. We've got another athlete from uh, Michigan. His name is Julian Borst, again, elite athlete, both of them competed against each other and pushed each other further than I've seen two athletes push each other at Special Olympics um, USA Games in Seattle. They both competed in the Boston Marathon and they had never met each other before competing at USA Games. And they've formed now a friendship and a bond through that. And now, you know, they continue to stay in touch with each other and push each other, even though they're competing in two different states. Um, and Andrew right now is actually over the next three days, trying to run 150 miles in three days to raise awareness and funds for a local food bank in Indiana. And that's, that's wow. another incredible thing that I see our athletes do is they give back as much as they get from Special Olympics. You know, Chris, part of what he's doing is, is building awareness for our organization and he's driving people to donate to his page and he's going to split that up between Special Olympics, um, I think another Down Syndrome um, uh, advocacy group, and one more. I can't remember what the other entity is, but you know, our athletes are giving back as much as they're getting from us and that's that's really anyone who's involved with Special Olympics, you know, at any stage, it takes one time to kind of have that experience. And, and so often, I mean, I, I, I would say, honestly, like across the board, people leave a Special Olympics event taking with them more than what they gave, whether that's through volunteering or fundraising or, you know, being a spectator. It's 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 that Kool-Aid that you keep drinking. And once you have a taste of it, you want more. <laughs> that's a great segue to my last question for you is how do people get that Kool-Aid? How can people get involved as a supporter or a volunteer and be a part of this Special Olympics movement? Yeah, no, I mean, there's a ton of different ways that um, people can get involved. What I'd recommend doing is um, going to specialolympics.org. That's the best place to start. Um, and you can find a local program uh, in your area, whether it's in the United States, Canada, Caribbean, outside of uh, the North America region. And, you know, if you have the funds to help support us financially, we will most certainly put them to great use in you know, providing continued programming for our athletes. But we also are uh, an organization that would not be who we are without our volunteers. And there's a variety of ways that people can volunteer, whether that's at in-person events by, you know, um, 
coaching some of our athletes or, you know, helping set up events, helping run events. Um, and, you know, now with us being so much in the digital space, there's a lot of different ways to be involved with our athletes. I mentioned being uh, part of Unified Sports. We have people that are volunteers by being uh, Unified Partners. And right now uh, we're doing things like uh you know, virtual walks and, and runs and distance challenges and things like that, that people can get involved with an athlete and push our athletes to continue to stay active and stay fit. But yeah, I would definitely recommend specialympics.org and then finding a local program near you. And there's a, such a wide array of ways that you can support Special Olympics and our athletes. That's fantastic. I do hope some people do check that out. Uh, I close every episode of Credentials Only with a six-question segment called The Set Pieces. Same questions for everybody. First one is, what are some podcasts or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep getting educated? Yeah, so I, I knew you asked me earlier, how do I keep tabs on everything that's happening around Special Olympics? So my number one is any Special Olympics newsletter. Um, I, you know, subscribe to all of our global ones, the ones um, that are coming out of each of our state um, and pro provincial and Caribbean island uh, chapters. But outside of the Special Olympics world, uh, the skim is my daily read. Uh, big, big fan of the skim that gives me all of the info I need in, <laughs> in one short newsletter and, and quirky uh, written way. And then for media purposes, um, I subscribe to, and this is a recent subscription, is to Synopsis, which I've found is a really valuable media uh, newsletter. So those are, those are my top threes. <laughs> what about on social media, your most valuable files, as we know, all the chapters? Yep. How'd you Who know? You I was going to lead with uh, all of our Special Olympics uh, social channels. Most of our programs have Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So check it out. Um, outside of that, Chris Nickich has been my like most recent Instagram follow. And I had to, you know, I followed everything that was transpiring on Saturday through his incredible journey and leading up to it. So that was a really great follow. Um, Rex Chapman on uh, Twitter is one of my favorite follows too, because he just, again, posts such incredibly inspiring and different content um, that just, you know, both inside the sports world and outside of the sports world. He's one of my favorites too. And of course, my Chicago sports teams, because that's how I can keep tabs on what's happening around the Chicago sports world. The, the Wisconsin sports fan over here is just shaking his head at that <laughs> oh, one. Sorry. Go Might here. edit that out. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. I've lost all control. Uh, what are a couple of books that you would recommend that people read? Oh, Pete. The books question is a tough one. As a new mom, I have no time for reading outside of the digital reading that I do between emails and newsletters and things like that. However, I'm hoping to decompress a little bit towards the end of this year and Megan Rapinoe's book that was just released is on my must read. Okay. Do you have time for streaming? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do make got? time for that. <laughs> what are you watching? Oh gosh. What are we watching? Um, so we didn't do a whole lot of TV watching with, you know, a newborn. We were trying to limit the screen exposure. However, since COVID that has gone completely out the window because, you know, what are you supposed to do with a 15 month old running around your house? Um, other than sports, because there, there are three TVs in our living room with, you know, two. Yeah. Yeah. Three. 
nuts. Um, there's always at least some kind of sport event on one of the TVs, but outside of those, we binged Stranger Things. Ozark was an incredible series. I can't wait for the next um, season of that one. Homeland, um, I had been following that one for years and that one just wrapped up. Handmaid's Tale was a big one that I actually watched during maternity leave, which I do not recommend people watch <laughs> that one during maternity leave. Why I thought that was a good idea. I have no idea, but excited for that one to resume at some point. Um, and we just started watching Schitt's Creek because I mean that with so many, you know, awards going to that, uh, series, I'm like, well, this is one we've got to probably watch. Right. <laughs> Based on your previous mention of allegiance to Chicago sports teams, I'm very worried about this next question. Uh, <laughs> what's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Well, Pete, I will save you from anything that's football related since we are on very opposite ends of the spectrum in the NFL world. But uh, growing up in a Northwest suburb of Chicago, it was impossible not to be a Chicago Bulls fan. Um, And so I would say the six NBA championships in the nineties and, and watching those at home with my mom and my dad and my brother, like I will never ever forget where I was when those, when the Bulls won their six different NBA championships in the, in the nineties. And then watching, you know, the last dance, which was another one, uh, another streaming that we did, you know, in the, in the spring during COVID um, was just that, it was great to relive a lot of those memories that I hadn't thought about for a long time. My closing question, do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? 100% I keep the credentials. I, I don't know anybody who doesn't. And the people that don't like, what are you doing? Um, (laughs) I've yet to do something really cool with them though. Like I've had these big plans of at some point doing something decorative and fun and creative with them. I would love to put them at some point into, you know, something that's framed. That'll be the, you know, the piece of art that's in our future bar that we have in our house that we don't have room for at this point. But for now they live in little shoe boxes, but I used to hang them proudly when I worked at ESPN and didn't work in my home office. Um, most of the people at ESPN would like drape them over, you know, part of their desk or their, um, chair or something like that. Unfortunately, I don't have some grand display of them yet, but I have a few ideas and places I want to use them. Tara, I really appreciate the time. It was great to learn more about Special Olympics and wish you the best of luck as you guys continue on. And, uh, that movement continues of inclusion. Yeah. Thanks so much, Pete. Really appreciate it. As I mentioned earlier, there are links to the videos Tara referenced, as well as more information about many of the great athletes that she referenced in this episode in the show notes, which can be found on credentialsonly.com. So go check it out. While you're on the website, sign up with your email and you'll get notified when we have a new episode to share. And please take a moment, leave a rating and review on your favorite site for podcasts. I want to thank Tara for taking the time to share her story with us. And I want to thank you for listening. Mike Michet edits Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.